If you have a copy of God's Word, um, please go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. It is in your worship guide. If you have your own Bible, it's on a page that I don't know. If you have my Bible, it's on page uh, 943. If you need a Bible, it's underneath your seat. There's lots of ways. If you have your phone, go ahead and, and click it. Click a couple of, well, not a couple of buttons. Click the screen a couple of times. And so while you're, you're turning there, I just want to briefly say from Sharice and I, thank you. Um, it hasn't been an easy last four weeks coming on five weeks. And the outpouring of love that we've received from the body of just the prayers um, and even financial support and is, has just been, I would say, humbling to say the least. We're scared. Um, we don't know what's in store for our precious baby, but what we do know and what we are holding on to is that God does work all things together for good. And even when we can't see them, He still does. And that's truly amazing. And what I've been meditating on a lot recently this past year is just what it means for God to be abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, think about that. God's love is steadfast. It never wavers. It's not like he's an icy friend where one day he shows up and the next day he's just freezing you out of his life. So his love is steadfast and it's abounding. It grows each and every day. It continues to get bigger. And in 10,000 years when we are with him, we will still not know and comprehend the massive love that he has for us. And so those are the truths that Sharice and I have been just holding fast to. And so I just want to say thank you so much. It's a privilege to serve you guys, and it's a privilege to call you my brothers and sisters. And so um, there's me being mushy and gushy with you guys. <laughs> but this morning what we are going to look at is we will be looking at the last part of our mission and vision. As um, through the last five weeks or so, we started the, the last Sunday in December, what we looked at and what we unfolded was just the, the new mission and vision, and that's that we want to see gospel transformation for the glory of God. That's what we want to be about here. And, and as I've said, week after week, this isn't a silver bullet. This isn't the, the gotcha. We know the, the method and, and the know-how to get people to come to this church or to explode or, or to whatever the church says at large that a church needs to be. No, what we want to do is we just want to see gospel transformation. We want to be changed by the gospel day by day in our lives so that we can look more like Jesus. And we do it for one purpose only. It's not to become morally good people. There's a lot of morally good people out there. There's a lot of religions that teach you how to become a morally good person. We want to do it because... We want to honor the God who has given us this new life and who continues to allow us to be transformed into the likeness of His Son. 
And so the first two weeks, we looked at those two aspects, what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel and what it looks like then to glorify God through that. And so then we looked at, okay, how do we start the process? Well, we start the process by knowing God. Because the knowledge of God, when we look outside of ourselves, we see a holy, transcendent, perfect God, and unless we have a serious narcissism problem, we have to then look at ourselves and say, I can't be perfect. I can't be holy. In fact, most days I'm unraveling at the seams and I'm a, I'm a pretty big mess. I'm not the demigod that I love to build myself up to be, in fact, I need a Savior. And so the knowledge of God causes us to look at Him, then to analyze ourselves and humbly lay before Him and say, I need you, God, to save me. I can't save myself. Only your Son, Jesus, can. And through then this knowledge of God, there's something that stirs in our hearts. And it's a greater love for our neighbor and for one another. The person that's been transformed by God, as the Apostle John says, loves their neighbors because those who have the love of God poured out in them, they can't help but love their neighbors. Even the difficult people, believe it or not. <laughs> Even the people that you would consider enemies, you're now called to love. Jesus tells his disciples that the world will know you, the world will know us, his bride, his church, by our love for one another. And the reason why we show our love towards one another is because we have been shown the greatest love in the world. It's that the Father sent his only Son to die for us. And so while we're being transformed by the gospel, we're starting to see all of the puzzle pieces click together. We know God and worship him because we're not God. We love God because He has shown us love, and we love our neighbors because He has shown His neighbors love. And then lastly, as we are in this process of seeing gospel transformation for the glory of God, we serve the community. We serve the community in two ways. We serve both the community in words, so the proclamation of the Word of God. Here we serve the community by the proclamation of the word. We go out and serve the community by evangelism. And we serve the community in deed. So we serve the community both in words and deeds. And so here's the question that I want to ask this morning. Because if you look at the heading above verse 16 of our passage, it says, the Great Commission. And I'm just going to Read verses 19 and 20 for us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's the question that I want to ask us this morning. What's so great about the Great Commission? If we were to briefly just read it over again, what makes this mission so great? We don't see the word great in there. We don't even see the word mission in here. So what makes 
this a great commission? Well, stick around and I'll tell you. <laughs> you see, what has tended to happen, or, or not even what has tended to happen, but what happens over time is that a lot of Christians like to stay and not go, like to not make disciples instead of make disciples and not teach them to obey instead of teaching them to obey. And there's a lot of reasons this happens. Comfort. I don't want to have to make myself uncomfortable and go out of my way and talk to this person. A fear of not knowing enough. Well, if I only had better um, access or knowledge to apologetics and evangelism, then I could see people come to know the Lord, or then I could disciple. Time. Well, I just don't have the time in my work life. I am a busy mother of all of these kids. I'm constantly on vacation, going to different places, and never being able to build relationships. I just don't have the time to fulfill this. But here's the reality of this commission, is that Jesus isn't giving us a suggestion here. No, he's actually giving us a command. He's giving us a command of great importance. In fact, I once heard that what this mission, this great commission, is boiled down to is that Jesus is inviting us to make the invisible kingdom visible. Let me say that again like this, because this is, I believe, so amazing. What God has done is he's looked at you and me and said, I am inviting you to participate in something that is so much bigger than yourselves. I am inviting you into making the invisible kingdom visible for all the world to see. You're invited to participate in this. I'm invited to participate in this. This is absolutely incredible. And so what we're going to do this morning, I've got just four points that I want to get through. So if you're type A and you love to take notes, here you go. We're going to, point one, look at what it means to go. Point two, we're going to look at what it means to make disciples. Point three, we're going to look at what it means to help others teach and observe all that Jesus has said. And the last point what we're going to look at is why we are able to even do this. All right. Point one. We get to verse 19, and the very first word we tend to gloss over, go. I mean, think about that. Think about the implications of Jesus saying, go. Think about all of the things that the disciples have just been through. The last three years they have been hanging around Jesus. Jesus had called them into this intimate friendship with him. This is just on the heels of all of them, all of them denying and running from Jesus while he is brutally murdered. 
hiding from Romans, thinking that they're going to be taken and thrown into prison and persecuted for hanging around with this Jesus guy. And now Jesus showed up to them, had Doubting Thomas touch the holes in his hands, ate fish in front of them, and he's here. He's here. Every single thing that Jesus told them had come true. He would die and he would raise again. And it happened. And here now Jesus is saying, go. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but if I'm a disciple with Jesus, I'm saying, no, I don't want to go, Jesus. I want to be by you. And we see in Acts that this is actually what they do is Jesus says, go. Jesus ascends. And not even five minutes later, a couple of angels have to come down and say, what in the world, guys? Didn't Jesus just tell you to go? And you're still here looking up, waiting for him to come back? You're supposed to go. The people of God, a disciple of God, if we want to serve the community here in the Fox Valley, we have to be a people that go from here. And you're saying, what do you mean, Max? I don't have a bed here. <laughs> I go from here every single Sunday. Well, we have to go from here with a purpose, on a mission. We can't just show up on Sundays out of habit or tradition. We can't just say, I'm going to come here and learn a few good things and then go out and never give that to anybody else. We have been called as a people to go, just like the disciples here have been called to go. All right, so you may be asking the question in your head right now. Um, maybe not. Maybe I assume too many questions. Maybe it's a question that's in my head. It's okay, Max. Where do I go? Where do I go? If this is the Great Commission, then, then how can I make it great? And where should I go? Should I go to India or China or Africa? Am I supposed to go to South America or maybe the dreaded Canada? I'm just kidding. Sorry if anybody Canadian is watching or if anyone's here Canadian. Do you know where Jesus told his disciples to go right away? Go back to Jerusalem. Go back to your, to your stomping grounds. That's where Jesus is saying to go. Go back to where you're most familiar with. Go back to Jerusalem. Go. Go to your stomping grounds. Okay, so here is the answer then to my question to myself. Okay, Max, where am I supposed to go from here? Go to your neighborhood. Go to that gas station that you always get gas from. Go to the store. Go to your family. Go to your kids. Go to your grandmothers and grandfathers. Go to the people that you interact with all the time that don't know Christ. Go. Okay, some of you here may be called one day 
to go to Africa or China or South America or Canada or somewhere else that's not here. But until that day comes, do you know where Jesus wants you to go? He wants you to go to the people that you interact with. Think about it. Do you think God sovereignly, in his infinite wisdom, placed you where you live, the people you work with, your grandchildren, your brothers and sisters, on accident? Do you think he just, ah, whoops, that's not who they were supposed to go to. Well, I hope this works out. No, he has placed you there with a specific purpose, to go to them. Because if you don't go to them, who will? Who are you waiting for? Who are we waiting for to go to them? Now, God has given you the privilege to go to them. Think about that. Out of all of the people in the world, he has given you the privilege to herald and bring this gospel to them. What a privilege it is to bring the gospel to a mother who does not know the beauties of Christ. Or to a sibling or a classmate. who are living in severe depression and anxiety and looking for hope and rest. Or a coworker whose life is blowing up and crumbling right before his very eyes. And so we go. Yes, we go to unreached people groups, but we go to the Fox Valley first. And so, church, we must be a church to follow Jesus' instructions right here to go. To go. This isn't a punishment. It would be so nice and easy on the day when you become a Christian if you were just raptured up or taken up or beamed up or however we're going to go up to be with Jesus. But that's not it. We have given, we've been given the great privilege to go. And so we must be a church and a people that, that go from here. But we go from here showing people the beauty and love of Christ. As Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling them, Go and evangelize. When you evangelize, you're to share about what you've just seen and experienced. You're to share about the riches of the mercy of God. You're to share that the Son of David has come and established the eternal kingdom, the kingdom that doesn't fade. You're to share that this world is fading away moment by moment, 
you're to share that if you're heavy, burdened, and laden, that I will give them rest. You are to share that the sinner can be healed. And you're to share this isn't just for one nation anymore. You know what's so amazing about Jesus saying, go and make disciples of all nations? This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise fulfilled that God had given Abraham. That through you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. You will have an offspring that will bless all of the nations. And now Jesus is saying, go and bless these nations by telling them what I've done for them. And then we're to be baptized. Look, I, I don't know if you are in here this morning and you haven't been baptized. Let me give you a little nudge. The reason why we get baptized when we believe is because Jesus commands you to be baptized when you believe. And so, if you're not baptized and you are a Christ follower, I'll say this as warmly as possible. Live in obedience to Jesus and get baptized. And so we go to our neighbors. We go to our brothers and sisters, our co-workers, our parents, our grandparents, our friends that are around us, our schoolmates. And we evangelize to them. But that's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to do in a pandemic, COVID, face masking, wearing world. This is where I think the American dream has ruined the church. Because we love to weigh the risk and rewards of evangelism. Instead of believing in the absolute sovereignty of God, we risk the rewards, or, or we weigh the risks and rewards of if this person will actually come to know Jesus or not. And if there's any doubt in my mind that maybe they won't, or maybe this will be a hard road to go along with them, then we take a step back and say, I don't know, it won't be a good idea, unless it's a for sure thing, then I'll do it. Just set me up with the alley-oop so I can slam dunk this guy. Remember what I said earlier is that we, we weigh our comfort, we weigh our time. What if we were more like the persistent widow going to the unrighteous judge in prayer for a person's soul day after day after day? Instead of worrying about the risk-reward, we continued to plead with God, give me an opportunity, give me an opportunity, give me boldness, give me faith, save this person. 
There's a missionary who forsake any risk-reward attitude that he could possibly have in his heart. I'm going to butcher his name because I always do. Uh, Adoniram Judson. Do you guys, are you familiar with this missionary? He's more of a popular missionary than most. He's long been gone. He's a missionary in the uh, 1700s, 1800s, I think. Could have been 1900s. Anyways, he was one of the first, uh, he went to the Burmese people. He went there with his wife. And his hope was that he would evangelize and make disciples of all nations. And do you know what happened to him the first few years? People, a part of his team, died, and they had to bury them. He was taken prisoner by the Burmese people and hung upside down. When he was finally released from prison, his wife passed away. And then for the next few years, he dealt with such severe depression that when he was finally able to make his way home after just laying on his wife's grave for weeks, what, I'm, what I've read, is he goes back to his hut in the jungle, literally, this isn't figuratively, literally buries his own grave behind his hut stands over his grave praying, God, if you could just kill me now so that way I could fall into my grave and go home to be with you and my wife, then please do it now. I mean, think about that. He dug this man his own grave and prayed to God that God would take him. And God did not. And God used Adoniram Judson, to then translate the English Bible into the Burmese Bible. Church, we need to fight against any inclination or pressure from the heart to have this risk-reward attitude and just say, I'm going to forsake all things for the sake of the gospel so that people can know Jesus Christ. We have to count the cost and say, yeah, people are going to look at me weird. But here's the question that we need to ask, is when in the history of the church has people ever not looked at Christianity as weird? When have they ever looked at Christianity as popular? They've never, people, unconverted people have never looked at Christianity and said, hey, that's a popular people group. No, they've always looked at us and said, wow, that's a weird bunch of people. And so let's, in 2020, let's try to just make Christianity weird again. So here's my challenge to us. If you need to take out your phone right now, take out your phone. If you need a pen, take out your pen. This I'm issuing a challenge. 
I heard one pen clip. Go ahead, if you have your phone, take out your phone, open up notes. If you have a pen, get, get a pen out. If you're on the line, do the same exact thing. There we go. Who's your one? I want you to take time to think right now. Think right now. Or pray and ask God, who is a person that I can start praying for, for their salvation? Who's that one? And maybe what it looks like right now, just when you leave here for the next week, for the next month or so, that you're just praying for them consistently. You're asking for opportunities to share the gospel. Who is that one? All right, so start with prayer. And then ask and look actively for opportunities. And when there's this spirit of fear that comes across you, when you're about to talk with that person or evangelize to that person, just say, I'm not going to buy into the risk-reward. I'm not going to do it. Even if I share the gospel with them a hundred times, two hundred, three hundred times, and they reject it every single time, I know God's word will not return void. It doesn't. So who's your one? But here's the thing. Just in case we think it's just about evangelism, we need to look at the rest of this verse here because it's not. We can't treat this mission by Jesus as just, I just need another, um, I just need another little line in my Bible of people that I've seen to come to know the Lord. No, if, if we just look at evangelism as just, I'm going to share the gospel, I'm going to see somebody converted, and then I'm just going to leave them, that's not what Jesus has commanded us to do here. In fact, when we do that, we're actually in active disobedience to this commandment. Because Jesus then talks about the discipleship process. He says, once you baptize them, once you see them come to know the Lord and they're baptized in my name, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you know what the, the Greek word for disciple is? The Greek word for disciple is mathetos which also can be translated as learner. And so literally, the job of a disciple, one who has been saved, is to be a learner. A consistent learner to observe. And the word observe in here is an active word. It's not a passive of just building up my knowledge to know cool and clever things. No, it's an active word that means when you learn something, do it. And so part of this discipleship process, part of community church serving our community here in Appleton in the Fox Valley is to be learners and followers of Jesus.
Let me illustrate it with this. Say you ask me, Max, what have you been doing lately? And I tell you, well, I've been taking classes to be a chef, and oh, I've been reading so many good books on it. I, I even attend a class once a week, and, and we sit down and we go through recipes, and let me tell I could tell you how to make anything. You need a little bit of paprika, some flour, some lemongrass. I don't know if any of that would taste <laughs> good together. And then you say, hey, why don't you come over, why don't I come over, or you come over, and I would love to taste some of this delicious food that you've been talking and talking about. And I tell you, well, wait a second. Well, no, I, just, I just know how to make it. Your confidence in me being a good cook or even a chef is probably going to dwindle, isn't it? Me just having knowledge does not make me a chef or a cook of any type. What makes me that is knowing and then doing. This is the same thing when it comes to discipleship. What makes you a disciple of Christ is having faith in Jesus and then doing what Jesus has commanded you to do. Uh, a pastor in Washington, D.C., Mark Dever, explains discipleship in this, I think, very simple and easy way. Discipleship is just one person helping another person follow Jesus. That's it. It's one person helping another person follow Jesus. It's as Paul writes to Timothy, saying the older men looking at the younger men and saying, come under my wing. Let me help you follow Jesus. It's the older women looking at the younger women saying, come under my wing, let me help you follow Jesus. And here's the brilliance of what Paul is saying here, is there's always somebody younger than you, and there's always somebody older than you, unless for the split second on this planet, you are literally the oldest person ever, then everybody is younger than you. Or you were just born and there's no other, that's like a millisecond but there's always somebody that's older and younger than you, which means that the, the age to disciple and to be discipled is always going to occur when you follow Jesus. Okay, so here's the next thing I would like us to do. As you are praying about the person evangel that you're going to evangelize, so as you're praying for the person that you have in your mind that doesn't know Jesus to follow Jesus, here's the next thing I want you to do. So go ahead and get out your phones or your pens. I want you to think of one person that you know of that's younger than you or older than you that you can ask to either be discipled by or to disciple. You could be in this church. It doesn't have to be in this church. It can be somebody. It could be a close friend. It could be a, a, I don't, a daughter, a son. It could be, just think of somebody. 
All right. Now, here's the thing. We're all so, so, so unqualified to disciple somebody. We're all so, so unqualified to evangelize somebody. And so if you're already feeling this pressure and this weight of, I, I don't know even where to start. First off, if you don't know where to start, come talk with me or Bill or Todd. But let me just lay it out there for us. Is We are unqualified to carry this out. We are. But here is maybe the most encouraging part of this passage. This part I had not taken time to really meditate on before, and I think it's probably one of the most encouraging aspects of this whole mission. Jesus ends saying this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is giving us a promise here. Jesus is literally telling his disciples, okay, I'm going, but I'm always going to be with you. I'm going to my Father's right hand, but I've sent the Holy Spirit to you so that way you could carry out this mission. So here's the thing, is that we are so underqualified to do this, and yet Jesus is constantly meeting us when we need his help. But here's the sad reality of all of this. When we weigh the risk-reward and we don't go out of our way to, to be bold, to trust that Jesus will be with us, we never then get the chance to experience Jesus being with us in those moments. And so we have churches across the world who dwindle and are growing smaller and smaller because they are afraid and are living in this fear to go out, as Jesus commands, make disciples trusting that he is going to meet them. Have you ever evangelized or discipled somebody? And afterwards you're like, I have no idea what I just said. And yet it was one of the most encouraging things. Or I didn't even know that, and yet that came out of my mouth. The Holy Spirit meets us because Jesus promises us that he will always be with us. And when we don't go out in faith to fulfill this great commission, we lose the chance to experience the presence of God like this. And churches become complacent, and people start to say, well, why don't we experience God like other churches or other people are experiencing God? It's because we never put ourselves in positions to actually see God work through us. And so the sadness of all of this is that as local churches and people in general do not experience that, the more they try to hold on, and the more they get scared of saying, I just need to do perfect. I just need to evangelize to this person perfectly. I just need to disciple this person perfectly. And they hold on tighter and tighter and tighter. And what happens is the risk-reward in their mind builds up more and more because they fear that if they don't do this, then they won't experience God all the while, they're not experiencing God because they're just not trusting in Him and going out and doing it.
And so here, here's how I just want to end this message. We must go. We must. The local church is set up so that the invisible kingdom can be made visible. And that happens through evangelism and discipleship. And if this wasn't the case, then the 12 disciples would have never have gone to Jerusalem. Paul would have never have went to Asia. Missionaries would have never have went to Europe. Europeans would have never have came over to America. Those living on the East Coast in the 13 colonies would have never have traveled over to Wisconsin. Appleton would have never been born. Community church would not exist. The plan of God is to advance his kingdom through evangelism and disciple-making. And so we must go and we must evangelize that Jesus Christ has paid the sins for all who confess him as Lord and Savior. And then we must invite people in to follow us as we follow Jesus. And we need to know that we're going to fail. We're going to fail. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. You're going to say a wrong something. You're going to say the wrong thing at times. Somebody's going to ask you a question and you're going to have to give them maybe one of the most important theological questions you can give them. I don't know. But I'll go and figure it out and come back to you. You're going to disappoint people that you're discipling. And those that, are that you're discipling, they're going to disappoint you. But it's in those moments that we need to remind ourselves that Jesus tells us that he will be with us always. And so if Jesus is with us always, tell me why we need to be afraid of evangelism and disciple-making. Tell me why we need to be afraid to not have the right answer or to possibly mess up while we're discipling. We don't have to be. We don't have to be. Because, yeah, we're going to mess up because we're broken people. But Jesus, is, but Jesus is not going to mess up because he's not a broken person. Uh, let me just finish like this because it's on my mind. The, the German reformer Martin Luther, I think, sums it up pretty good by just saying, <laughs> we are one poor beggar pointing another poor beggar just where to get bread. Let's fight this risk-reward mentality and boldly pursue in faith 
evangelism and disciple making here at Community Church. We want to serve our community well. This is how we're going to do it. Because as more disciples are made, the invisible kingdom is made visible, which means more people are going to love one another like Christ has loved us. More people are going to be willing to give their time, resources, and love to one another. And that's what they call a revival. That's what I'm praying for. But it will not start without prayer, evangelism, and disciple-making. Let's pray. Holy God, you are worthy to be praised. You are awesome and wonderful. There is none like you at all. It is such a privilege to be called an ambassador of the gospel. And yet, Father, I need to ask for forgiveness. Forgive me when I have decided that my comfort and time is way more important than giving it to the cause of this great mission that you have set before us. Father, you use ordinary people all the time. In fact, you tell us that the humble will be exalted. And so I just ask that you would be so gracious and generous to us to raise up humble people here in this church that would go out forsaking all things, forsaking this mentality of, if I don't get a reward from evangelizing or discipling this person, then I'm not going to do it. Would you just strip us of that? Would you strip us of that, please? And cause us to see that you are with us always. And the reason why we go out in evangelism is because of your glory, your love that you have shown us. Why would we withhold that from others? Please, let your cross, let your son's life, death, and resurrection be so clear and vivid to us that we can't help but tell people the beauty of Him and the wonderful relationship that He calls us into. I pray this in Your Son Jesus' name. Amen.